I'm leaving the meeting. This thing's being recorded. <laughs> you can't leave. You're half the owl. <laughs> it takes two of us to make a whole owl. Sound. Which which half am I, Don? <laughs> I don't know. I think I'm the one with the brains. Yeah, so. I've kind of figured I'd be the owl butt. <laughs> Well, you're the butt of that joke anyway. Yeah, it tends to happen. <laughs> Welcome to the Boil Now Coffee Club Podcast, the meeting after the meeting, where we talk about our experience living sober. We don't speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. This is only our experience. We have no monopoly on sobriety. If you don't like our approach, that's okay. There's lots of ways to live and lots of ways to live sober. This works for us. I'm Don. Hey, Don. I'm Sam, y'all. Sam. I'm a little sad, Sam. I'm, I'm You're a sad a little, Sam. I'm a little bit of a, yeah, I'm a sad sack. <laughs> I'm a little What's bit going of a, on? I'm a bit of a victim, Sam. Oh, now that's a given. I mean, that's like one of your major character defects there, man. You might say that I'm uh, sitting on the pity pot. Mm-hmm. And in, in fact, I wrote a little song about that. Oh, no. Uh-oh. <laughs> the pity pot. Sit down on the pity pot, pity pot. Get down on the pity pot, pity pot. The victim king on my personal throne. Listen to me sing to my bones and my groans. Sit down on the pity pot, pity pot. Get down on the pity pot, pity pot. The majesty of my tragedy. Get down, get down, down on me. Sit down on the pity pot, pity pot. Get down on the pity pot, pity pot. Sit down on the pity pot, the pity pot. Get down on the pity pot, the pity pot. Pour me, pour me. Pour me, pour me, pour me, pour me, pour me a drink. Oh my God, Don! I I think we may have to go into video podcast land now. You know, it's going to totally going to have break traditions and everything, but people got to see you dance into that. Oh yeah, you can da- you can dance to the pity pot song, <laughs> Don. I love your sick brain. <laughs> well, that's actually something uh, my friend uh, David D, when he came into the program, he used to sing that all the time. Get down on the pity pot, pity pot, down on the pity pot, pity pot. And that's all he had. But he'd do that all the time. It's always stuck with me. And it seemed kind of appropriate if, if you want to smack yourself out of playing the victim sing that song so i just decided to develop it a little bit maybe put a little backbeat on it put a little (laughs) fat back in the stew (laughs) and so now we're going to have that as your life's soundtrack right (laughs) it kind of is (laughs) well playing the victim is one of my prime character defects so i get to sing it a lot (laughs) what's shaking with you Oh man, it's so hot here, man. And I'm absolutely loving it. But <laughs> seriously, it's like North Carolina humid right now, which is just kind of crazy. I'm I really it was a enjoying desert. being here. Well, it is a desert, but one month out of the year, it gets humid. You get some humidity. At least that's what the locals tell me. Oh, wait, I'm a local now. <laughs> um, but it's been kind of cool. I, uh, I've gotten to, I've gone to a meeting out in one of the parks. 
And uh, that was cool. meeting of, of, of CMA, you know, Country Music Awards and uh, Crystal Meth <laughs> Anonymous. not. <laughs> uh, so that was kind of cool. As a matter of fact, I, it was wait really- Wait a second, I over talked to you. That's Crystal, Crystal Meth. Meth Anonymous. Yeah. And one of the cool things, I just love how this happens, is um, I had uh, agreed to meet a friend there who has not really connected with uh, meetings here who moved here from Charlotte within the past year. And so he and I met at that meeting and that was cool. I introduced him to some people that I already know. Well, that's cool. Did your yeah. Southern accent come back uh, from no. talking with the guy from Charlotte? I don't think so. I'm, I'm not aware of it when it happens until I hear me recorded though. So there's yeah. no telling. You um, don't have a really strong <laughs> accent, but I don't know. I'm not. I'm yeah, you got here. a strong accent. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. You sound but, you know, like what, me. I, actually, I know we do have an accent going on, though. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the other cool thing is I now have a home group. I had been going to a meeting that uh, on East Coast time was 10 a.m. Right. While I was in Greensboro, I was hitting that meeting because 10 a.m. was a very convenient time. Yeah, well, it's a 7 a.m. meeting here. Yeah, and you said that you were going to have a problem with that 7 a.m. Yeah, would. it just, I mean, I, I'm up. I'm up at like 6 o'clock, but it's just smack dab in the middle of my morning. So what my time is your meeting? Uh, so the home group meeting is uh, Mondays at noon, and uh, it's just the perfect time, right? at least right now, as I'm starting to ramp up my business. I think it'll still work out. It's my, uh, my sponsor's home group. And he told me about it. Well, you've like, you've gone, you dove in with both feet. You've got oh, a home I went group. head first, man. Head first. <laughs> <laughs> you've got a home group, got a sponsor. I, and I have also reached out to a uh, trusted servant at the district level to find out how can I get connected with people who are in general service here. So that's going go. on too. That's so yeah, so li the Living Sober group uh, in Palm Springs at noon on Mondays is my new home group. And by going to it, I just instantly loved the camaraderie, the friendship that was so evident in the meeting before the meeting uh, on Zoom was just mm -hmm. really attractive. And, is it a Zoom uh, meeting now? It is a Zoom meeting right mm -hmm. now. Well, and, I'd uh, like to meet your sponsor sometime. Well, um, so Don, look at the other square on your screen. <laughs> Who's that? Introduce Hi, introduce yourself. yourself. Hi, my name is Doc, and I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. Doc. Hey, Doc, thanks for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure to meet you. It's nice to meet you as well. Doc, when did you get sober? I got sober May 20th, 1988. Well, a bit ago. A, you're an old timer. You sound like an old timer. Kind of. <laughs> I, I'm an alternative old timer, however. I, <laughs> alternative. I have, a, I have a, a considerable different take on program than many other old timers do. Ah, it works for me. It's a broad highway. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I have a brief story. I was here in Palm Springs at one point because, and I was worried about and consistently going to a particular meeting that had an express way of dealing with, with every issue that had was very formulaic and very much within a line of what the what some old timers in that meeting thought was appropriate. And I shared at that meeting that there were a million different programs and everybody gets to run their own. And somebody came up to me after the meeting who had a lot less time than I did. And he said, you know, 
there aren't a million different programs. There's only one program. There are just a million different successful ways to run that. I like and that was, that was eye changing for me. And this guy had about half the time in the program that I did. Oh, I thought you were going to go in a different direction. And I was going to, I was starting to get my, uh, my feathers started to get ruffled. <laughs> well, tell me about, tell me about how that would, how that would ruffle your feathers. Yeah, that won't ruffle my feathers, but the, but the idea of uh, making up your own program does. Well, see, that's, that's, a, that's one place where I have a, a difference from most people in program as well. Many people in program. Uh -huh. I sincerely believe it is entirely possible for people to make up programs and, and create their own systems that work for them. Entirely oh, possible. It definitely I is. I also know that for me, that is definitely not a possibility. I did <laughs> not have the wherewithal. I did not have, and still don't, the wherewithal the internal fortitude, the foresight to pull this together out of my head or out of, or even out of 16 different things from 16 different methodologies. Yeah. So program worked for me. I've talked with my new sponsee, Sam, about how program works for me. And one of the ways that program does work for me is that early on in program, I realized that the rule set I had been given in life was not sufficient for living life in a healthy, decent manner. And that the program and the steps and the traditions gave me a structure on which to build a life. And I have a longtime sponsee who's passed now. He used to talk about building the steps into one side of your spine and the traditions into the other. And it holds you up. Oh, yeah. I like that. Let's I hear what you're saying. I had no good idea of how to fix anything in my life. When I came in, it had all turned to crap. And I had no idea how to quit drinking. I could not do it. And I tried, let me tell you, <laughs> I tried every single way I could think of to be able to successfully drink and not overdo it. I, I ran out of all ideas. So at some point I reached the point where I was able to um, get sober someone else's way. But I like what you say about it. it is real easy for people to become rigid in what works. There are certain things that definitely have to be done, but there's a whole lot of, like we say at the beginning, there's lots of ways to get sober. This works for us. But I even agree with, with that. Even within AA, there's a tendency of, I, I call it a fundamentalist tendency that humans have, and some more than others, and they just are locking down on certain things. I remember one guy who was, one guy freaks out if there's any profanity, and another, uh, another person who was like really concerned with dress code. And it's like this, <laughs> this is control, trying to control. I bet they're having a shit fit with dress code on Zoom meetings. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. Sam, so, get out of the bathtub while we're recording. <laughs> Do you really want me to get out of the tub right now, Don? <laughs> well, you did say it was hot. 
So Doc, what happened to you that made you willing to do this AA thing? Did you come into AA? I came into AA initially, and that expanded very rapidly to both to NA uh-huh. um, at the time. What was going on emotionally inside of you at that time that that made you willing to do that? Yes. Well, um, my life had a series of incomprehensible demoralizations over a period of probably about 15 years. At a certain point, I had been told by a doctor after trying to make a do a geographic and using drugs on the way to my new living place after being hospitalized that he said, he said to me as he was, they were releasing me, he said, I saved your life this time, but I can't save your life again. You're going to have to save it. And he knew I'd been using speed. He figured it all out. You know, I was having issues with my kidneys and I was having systems failures. It was pretty bad. Hmm. Did you end up at the hospital? I ended up in the hospital for 36 hours. And I, I, I left that situation Deciding that I, knowing since I was 19 that I was an addict, but never acknowledging the fact that I was an alcoholic. And so my drinking, which had, was heavy while I was using, became even heavier. And I got to the point where I was drinking about a fifth a day. It was easy for me to do after I'd done the geographic because I was working for a company where literally the entire management staff were alcoholics. Everybody drank in excessive quantities every day at work starting about noon. So that ended my using career as far as crystal goes, but I continued to drink very, very heavily the remainder of that year. And then along about December, after a number of different incidents, um, I decided to put down the bottle as well. In fact, my last drink at that point was on December 31st, 1987. The doctor had said, that he couldn't save your life again. So you felt like if you quit the drugs, is that what was happening? Yeah. If I quit the drugs, everything would be fine because I literally could not imagine a life without intoxicants. Absolutely could not imagine one beyond my capabilities. Yeah. And, but by the end of that year, I had convinced myself I was an alcoholic and was going to give up and was going to give up alcohol. And I was in a living situation with somebody who was also using and drinking during that time. And I was successful giving up alcohol and, and, and leaving the drugs alone from January 31st until May 20, May 18th of that year. The person I was living with actually came and got arrested. The, the sheriff showed up at our door and took him away. And he was already on probation for other DUIs and had gotten other new DUIs. And they took him away and sent him off to prison. Hmm. And that actually freed me up to stay clean and sober during that time. And so from uh, January 31st until May 18th of that year, my life began to change because I was sober. And well, because I wasn't using, let's say that I wasn't sober. And during that time, I had my child who was um, at that point about seven years old came to live with me because I was clean and sober and my ex was, or I was at least without substances, my ex was not. And I got a job. I got my first really good professional job of my life. After years and years and years of being well-educated, but working jobs where I could not show up on Monday, leave, call in sick on Thursday. Jobs with some flexibility. 
stability. Yeah. So years of being underemployed. After years of being underemployed, I had my first real professional job. And the people that I was uh, working for sent me back to my old stomping grounds in northern Nevada for, for a golf tournament and conference. Now, I'm not exactly the kind of golf player, but they told me to, they told me to go glad hand, just said, say hello to everybody. And I, and I did, and I was successful, and I had a really good time. The last night of the conference, I was ushered into a ballroom with about 200 other people, and they already had wine poured at every single place. I every know where si- this is there was going. already wine poured on. Ten to ten t- there were ten tops, you know, tables that seat ten people, and wine was already poured. So I sat down, and I thought, you know, it's been over five months. You could do this. Just one. And um, a glass yeah. of wine can't hurt me. And so, yeah. I bet so you drank a glass of wine and I, I didn't stop there. No. Drank another glass of wine. Had vague memories of being at the bar at that same facility a few hours later. Had vague memories of um, being at a gay bar, some gay, sometime in the following 36 hours, and I don't know when. And woke up on the morning of May 20th, not knowing how I got there, not knowing where my company car was, not knowing to still had a job. And the most important thing of all of these not knowings was at the moment I woke up, I did not know where my daughter was. Yeah. That brings tears to my eyes now. Mm-hmm. I had left her with my ex-sister-in-law, who was one of the most responsible people on either side of our family. But at the moment I woke up, I didn't remember that. At that moment, two things happened. I literally howled like an animal. I scared the shit out of the guy next to me in bed. And I immediately surrendered. I was done. Had you heard of... AA or NA or any, the 12 steps, any of that? Oh, absolutely. I, 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 I had even gone to adult children and alcoholics meetings because I knew the reason for every bad thing in my life had nothing to do with my own drinking and using it. So my parents were both addicts and alcoholics. It wasn't my fault. It was theirs. Oh, uh. <laughs> so I knew about AA meetings and AA specifically at that moment or during those years, was a big turnoff to me because my ex-wife's uncle, who was of a, a generation where his wife had actually gone to Al-Anon meetings with Lois Wilson, hmm. um, was the biggest bigot I had ever met. He hated black people, he hated Jews, he hated Catholics, I was Catholic. Um, he hated everybody. And I figured everybody in AA was just like him and I wasn't yeah. gonna be any part of that. Yeah. But you said um, you surrendered and that's, so that's what, because of that language of looking back on it or would, or did you have the language to know that it was surrender at that time? No, I didn't have the language to know that that's what I was doing. All I knew was that I finally came to the realization that what I was doing was not working and had not ever worked. Hmm. And I went to my first AA meeting that day. I got up out of that bed with the help of family who lived in that town. I went and found my car 
I did not lose my job. My employers, this is back in the days of pagers, my employers had expected me to take 24 hours to get back to my home city and they didn't expect to hear from me. So they never knew that all this came down. I was able to get a hold, get hold of my daughter from my sister-in-law and I knew, I went to my parents' house, <laughs> my parents who lived in that same town, and I said, mom and dad, I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict and I need help. And my parents' reaction to that was, oh, honey, no, you're not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they don't want to believe it. As my, mo- as my mother sipped her highball while taking a second all. <laughs> I, so, um, my mother, hmm? when I got my one-year chip, one year sober, I was so excited. And I wanted my wife to come with me to see me get the one-year medallion at the noon meeting that I went to. And I asked my mother to babysit our child who was seven years old. She said, well, I know you think you need to keep going to those meetings. So, okay. But it's like, she could not accept the fact that I was an alcoholic. I mean, it's a, it, it, because for me to go to that meeting meant I was an alcoholic. And it's like, she was not going to accept. It was from a different point of view. Alcoholism was shameful. Shameful and some, some type right. of failing perhaps on the parents part that the child turned out as an alcoholic. Well, that could yeah, be that too. perception yeah, too. Exactly. I can certainly see ego saying that mm-hmm. doc. Yeah. I'm curious though. Uh, so you went to a meeting that day, that night, mm-hmm. Um, how did you find uh, out about the meeting? How did how did you know? Because this was before the internet was I, up. I looked it up. I looked it up. And I looked up AA in the phone book. In the phone book. What's and a I phone called. book? <laughs> <laughs> well, did you want to run out of the place? I I I called. Said no. When I got to the meeting, no. I called central <laughs> office in in the town I was in. And they told me that there were several meetings that afternoon and evening, and one of them happened to be a gay meeting. And it was the only gay meeting in that town every week. And I went to that meeting. And the thing I remember about that meeting is people were laughing. Yes. Don't remember anything else. And they weren't phony laughing. They Mm -hmm. weren't party chit-chat laughing. They were laughing. That's attractive, isn't it? Yeah. I hadn't laughed in a long time. Mm. I had not laughed in a very long time. And so when I got back to the town I was living in at the time, which is Sacramento, California, I started going to meetings at a place called North Hall, which is a gay meeting hall. And um, there were many meetings there every week. I, I have no idea how many, but probably 20 or more. And that started my program. So how did you get involved? Well, that's, did you just start going to meetings, or did you get did you get a sponsor right away? Did you? Oh, absolutely not. I was I was that one in pro, in program who was absolutely ter- terrified of all of y'all. Mm-hmm. It all had to do with ego. I had to look good, and so I'd be the last one in at the brightest meeting started. I'd sit near the door. I would sometimes leave before the final prayer. And I did that for about 18 months. It kept me, that plus be having to pay attention to my child kept me sober. I, now, I thought since you said, I'm not gay, but I went to, into AA and I was like appalled at the whole thing. 
even though I was attracted, as you said, to the people who did not fit my uh, mental image of what an alk dirty, trembly alcoholic was, uh, they weren't that. And they were laughing and they were happy, but, but they were talking about God and I didn't want anything to do with that. So that's what ran me out uh, right away. But since you said that you went to a gay meeting, I'm, in, mentally I was going, well, then it he, he, he must have identified right away. But there was still, it was still a barrier. Well, the, the barrier was, was my ego. Mm. The, barrier, the barrier was me and my fear and had nothing to do with what was going on at that meeting. I ended up going to probably about three meetings a week at that point. I did not get a sponsor. I didn't get a sponsor until about, I guess it was about 18 months, 19 months into my program, into, into going to meetings. Were they, um, did you go to all gay meetings or did you go to uh, uh, other pretty meetings? much stuck to all gay meetings at that point? Okay. I was sticking to all gay meetings in Sacramento, but they were, they were, it was a mostly working class area. And so it was mostly working class people. And so I, I identified at that point with that very much. So, well, let me ask you for somebody new that might be listening. So, how did you? stay sober, even though you were like not getting a sponsor, not jumping in on working the steps because you can't do that by yourself. How did you stay sober? Did you stay sober that 18 months? Oh, absolutely stayed sober that 18 months. There were, there's three parts to that. Number one is I'm an avid reader. I read every piece of AA literature there was. And some of it I considered bullshit at the time. And for one thing, and there are still things that I consider bullshit. For example, chapter to the agnostics, I consider the most poorly written, arrogant piece of trash I've ever come across. But much of other program literature was incredibly valuable, incredibly valuable. And, and that helped me. The other thing was the spirit at the meetings. I finally started feeling welcome at meetings. And that took over. So the fellowship. Yeah, the fellowship. And the third thing was, to be real honest with you, before my program caught fire inside me, I made a determination that I was going to no longer be the parent to my daughter that my parents were to me. And the idea that I had to make some change because I wasn't going to do to her, I wasn't going to have her grow up the way I grew up. Mm. That was one of the key factors. So at 18 months, I'm starting, I'm seeing people who are not in pain and I'm still in a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. I'm still having a lot of issues. So I picked this guy in the rooms who was straight. He was not one of the people who attended North Hall. I was at a different meeting because I didn't want the people in North Hall to know that much about me. <laughs> <laughs> this guy didn't really like gay people. But he was a good sponsor for me at that moment. We started working the steps. We, we did one through four, and then we did five, and I did six and seven. When I did five, I did not feel that sense of relief of burden that many people talk about. Which is share uh, the exact nature of your wrongs with another person. Yeah. Step five. Um, I felt after doing five, after sharing with him, I felt like an open wound. Mm -hmm. Not only was I 
morally reprehensible in many ways and had done a lot of things that I was ashamed of. But now somebody knew about it. Yeah. And it was really hard. Six yeah, there's seven. there's uh there's more steps after that that help deal with <laughs> with the with the because nothing has changed except we've admitted that we were right. did some bad things. Six and seven didn't really ground me as much as I had hoped. At this time, we're talking. I'm two and a half years without a drink or a drug, and I really feel like I am working a program. Um, I'm still not feeling a tremendous relief from my burden of guilt. Well, six and seven did not re relieve me that much, but I did started doing step eight. And as that stuff went down on paper, as I began to make a list of people I had harmed, it became something where I, I realized I could take action yep. to make change. About well, right after I had gotten to the point of doing my entire eighth step before I even had really started my ninth step, I got a call from a drug counselor who was um, working with my ex-wife in, in Reno, Nevada, where I had come from originally, and she was in a 28-day rehab. And the last week of that rehab was where the family members would go in for five days for six hours a day. And be there, be present. And he said, I needed to come and I needed to bring my daughter. Well, my response was, fuck no, I'm not doing that. And my sponsor's response was, fuck yes, you are. He said, not only are you going to do that, you're going to do your night step to her while you're there. Mm. How resistant to that were you? Beyond resistant. Beyond resistant. I made the commitment to the man that I would do it. And because of the way I feel about commitments, I did it or mm. was going to do it, but I didn't want to do it at all. Was she the, one of the worst ones for you the, to oh, be, I mean, to be able to make amends step nines was, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Them or others. Yeah. But you did it because your sponsor said, and you had said that you're going to do what your sponsor. I made the commitment and I went ahead and did it. The funny thing was the circumstance. All of the family were in the room at the time. And I talked to my um, guy who would call me when he asked me to come to this event was her, was my wife's counselor. And they brought somebody in to sit beside me. It was going to be my support system during this, this time when I was doing my ninth step. And the way they worked it is her entire family was in the room. Mm. So you had to make amends to her entire family? Yeah. I mean, watching? Yeah. yeah, they were all watching. Okay. I did my best at that point. I think I did an okay job. She, my my ex-wife had always believed that I was bisexual or, or experimenting. I never cheated on her during the course of our marriage. I never did any of that. But she had, did not know I was gay, and I had never told her I was gay, and in a way I had used her. I tried to find the kindest way I could find to tell her that, and I think I did an okay job. And I made an amends for that, because that was a huge personal failing, and it was reprehensible. And me making that amends and being involved actually brought her family around. We, for the very first time in years, started developing a relationship. 
which is good because, you know, they were important in my daughter's life. Right. I knew when I left that meeting, it was last day, it was the last day of the family program. And I knew when I left there, I knew that not only was it possible to change in program, I knew I already had. That's beautiful. Yes, it is. Doc, I, I know that you got um, uh, incredible results, for lack of a better term, from making that amends. Yeah. Have you ever pondered what your life would be like if you had not made that amends? Actually, I am sure that at some point, in somewhere in the process, because as much as I am not a traditional God-fearing guy, the universe has some kind of pulse to it. I am sure that at some point I would have come across that realization. Mm -hmm. What I do know is that at that moment, the program actually, that was the moment the program actually caught fire in my heart. I love that term. I always say that the, that making amends step nine is the real gold because that's where for the first time, the, all the shame, everything that I did is cleared away. And then, and only then can I begin to live one day at a time and not be that person anymore. So the freedom comes from making amends and it's hard to do it. It's, it's scary to do. Yes. But, that's where the real change comes from. My experience on that has been that uh, all I had to do was the first two or three amends. And I got through my fear. And, and I love the promises that are read in a lot of meetings, but they're often not introduced. And there are plenty of promises throughout the big book, but they're, the, the ones that are most commonly read are often not introduced as the ninth step promises. Step promises, yes. Agreed. And my experience of those is that before I was halfway through, I was experiencing a lot of what's described there, uh, including fear of people. That fear of people had really diminished greatly. It was one of those things that rather than me uh, avoiding people that I had harmed, I was able to walk in this world with my head up and look everyone in the eye and not shirk away from people. Because even if I had not yet made amends, I was willing to. Those amends, uh, the opportunities for those presented themselves. And, and you know, some of those, I, I, I took the steps to, to, make, to, to ask for the opportunity. Other situations, as you were saying, Doc, uh, the universe lines things up sometimes. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that what ends up happening is we internalize a sense of shame around behaviors that we do while we're drinking and using. When we're drinking and using them, before we get to the to steps eight and nine, we may not see how that is ever possible for us to release that shame. Step in my my experience is that when I did steps eight and nine with a whole heart and a sincere commitment that that sense of shame went away. That sense of shame went away. Yeah. I, I accepted almost Zen-like. These were my behaviors. They were bad. I need to 
set that right with, with the people I harmed and the universe. And when I'm done with that, I can walk free. And But the thing is, I didn't even aware of how much my inner voice was telling me I was a piece of shit all the time. But it was right. always there. <laughs> right. Yeah. And exactly. being, man, making the amends and all freed that because I've done the best I can do to correct the places that I've harmed people. And I'm not that person anymore. I'm not going to mm -hmm. live that way anymore. And if I make a mistake, I'm going to correct it right now. Yeah. Or as soon as I'm aware of it. Yeah, exactly. You, you know, I was talking with Sam about this yesterday. I grew up in a family where image was important, but being able to hold their hold things together was not part of the part of the, the reality of our lives. So a lot of what my parents did and said was bullshit. It was all image and fake and stuff like that. And that's the way I thought everybody lived. I thought everybody was like that. I thought that yeah. AA was that way. When I came into AA, it <laughs> took me a while to go, wait a minute. These people seem to be sincere about exactly. what they're saying. It's not all exactly. a facade. Yeah. And, and, you know, so when I finally got and understood the, the concept of rigorous honesty, I was probably, it was during that 18 month to two and a half year period. And it was literally like I was seven years old understanding honesty for the first time in my life. <laughs> yeah. I, I identified. It was. It was. Yep. You know, and I went home to my daughter and I said, hey, there's this thing called rigorous honesty. We're going to do that with each other. We're never going to lie to each other. And. We're always going to tell each other the truth, and we're going to try to do that everywhere in our lives. And she said, right on, Dad. And, you know, for the most part, yeah, with one grand exception later, later in her life, that is absolutely the truth. So That's great. I've got to ask you, we're, we're almost out of time, but we're going to have to touch on this. A major part of the program for me is that there is a power greater than me because it can't be me. So if you're an atheist, is it you or is there a power greater than yourself? Yes and no. Um, well, tell me in a practical way what you do on a daily basis to stay sober and work this part of the program. Do you, is the prayer and meditation part of your Meditation life? is absolutely, mindfulness is part of my practice. Not, not prayer, mm -hmm. mindfulness. I don't see, trust me, it's not that I haven't said, oh, God, please make that not happen once in a while in my sobriety. But in terms of real belief systems, being mindful is the important part. And the acceptance of the fact that I'm a component. In, I'm a scientist. That's my background. I'm a component in a grander universe. I am not the be-all and end-all. I'm simply one functionally expressive energy source within an entire universe filled with all kinds of other energy sources and they all interact. So I have a very Zen way of accepting things. It is what it is, you know, and Sam and I have talked about this already a, co a couple of times. My way of coping in life is developing my sense of acceptance 
And that's the part of the big book that's really, really important to me. Yes. It's all Whenever I have a problem with something, the issue is with me. Mm -hmm. And being able to recognize that and choose as a result of an innate acceptance of that fact to respond to the universe in the most kind, loving, appropriate way I can rather than react out of anger or react out of fear is my daily goal. Now, I am not always successful with that. Yeah, the only control I really have is my response to events. I have no control over anything. And as I've said to Sam one time before, I'm letting go just as hard as I possibly can. You've said that a lot yeah. more than once, Don. <laughs> yeah. Well, Doc, I have to, to share real quick because uh, this just hit me uh, whenever uh, Don was asking the question. And, and a mutual friend of ours posted this quote by uh, or tweet by Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, just recently. Uh, this is uh, David in Atlanta posted this. Since the universe has no center, you can't be it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I have had the same sponsor now for, it'll be 27 years in December. And she is an amazing woman. One of the things that uh, I love about the way she runs her program, which is quite different than mine, is the fact that she believes in what she calls the hula hoop rule. And I don't know if you've ever heard about the hula hoop rule. Nope. That is, you take a hula hoop and you set it on the ground and you stand right in the middle of it. What is inside the hula hoop is under your control. <laughs> okay. What is outside the hula hoop is not. And that, from the standpoint of acceptance, is key to my life. Mm. Yeah, I got control over about three feet all the way around me. Yeah. Or less, 18 inches maybe. <laughs> and, and that's on a good day because one of the things that I still am, am very aware of is that I'm powerless over a thought popping into my head. I have access Absolutely. to power in the next thought, but, exactly. but I can't, there are some things I can't even stop me from doing. Absolutely true. There was a guy in Colorado where I was working a whole lot and that's full of ranches and cowboys there. And this guy was a cowboy and he said, I'm running a really small ranch. It's about three feet all the way around me. That's all I got control over. And I've always liked that. I'm running a small ranch. <laughs> I love that. That's wonderful. Doc, thanks for joining us, but don't go anywhere because matter we... of fact, you might want to duck. I think I see something about to swoop. <laughs> it's time for our old timers question. You calling an old timer? You. That's what happens if you don't drink and you don't die. Well, I'm sure Doc would join me in telling you that no matter how long you've been sober, it's still one day at a time. Sonny. Sonny. <laughs> You can post a question at boiledowlaa.org. We have a question from Brandy in Spring Lake, South Carolina. Is this a cult? <laughs> well, I think that answer is complicated. Because for some people, 
who needed to be a cult, they have made it into a cult. My goal is to stay away from those people. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Because there are a lot of people who use program, whether it's AA or NA or CMA or any of this type of 12-step recovery, as a springboard to a healthier, happier life. And there are people who need rigid, controlled environments, and they use the program like a cult to keep control of themselves because they're not capable of doing that without having a rigid framework. And I'm going to tell you something. I don't think that one is better than the other. I think whatever we need to keep us clean and sober is just fine. Now, that said, when the cultists try to start telling me how to live my life, I might have an issue, but I also have the choice to walk away and find people and meetings that work for me. Yeah, I like that. That's a, I've often thought of the problem of AA being a cult. And, you know, I remember someone saying, you, you know, you got, they're going to brainwash me, but I needed my brainwashing. And I did need it a good, I needed a good brainwashing when I came in. I, I had to, because my ideas of how the world operated it and how to live in it and how to respond to all that, it was all screwed up. It wasn't working. I proved it wasn't working. So I needed to find a different way. I do like the, the way that AA is a we program. It's a group. And, you know, I've read the original manuscript of the big book. So what Bill Wilson wrote and then what was actually published. And what they did was the whole group took what he wrote and broadened it and opened it up, made it less about his personal experience and more what the whole group experienced. I like the idea that the, that we, you know, we have a window on the world. It's what we get to see. And if I have all the people in AA and, and I have all their experience, then I have a much bigger view of what's going on out there than I do just through my one little window. So I depend on the, on the whole group, but, you're right. People can be very cultish. I think humans want to separate from others. It seems to be just the most natural thing in the world to gather a group and say, we're the ones who have it and everyone else is wrong. But the thing about AA is, it's in the broadest terms, is you don't have to do what we do. You can. You, there's lots of ways to stay sober. But this works for us. And my sponsor kept saying, you know, it's a, well, you can drink, go drink. And I was going, well, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. I'm super, okay, I'll make a list. And, <laughs> you know, as I was resisting some of the stuff that AA was asking me to do, I didn't want to drink again. And there's other ways. And, you know, if, I, if there's another way that works, go for it. But this works for us. So I don't yeah. think it's a, too much of a cult if it's like, you go do what you want to do. Yeah. 
Well, and, and the people within program who live a very rigid way, that's just fine. If they, if that's what they need to stay clean and sober, I have, there is, I have absolutely nothing against it. That would not work for me. I think that we as humans have an inherent need to structure safety and security into our lives. Now, or the structure, belief, the structure gives a feeling of safety. Right. There are a lot of philosophers out there, and this is, not program, this is not program literature, but there are a lot of philosophers out there that talk about the ability to live in uncertainty. And some people seem to be more adept at it than others. And if certain people need to structure their lives so that they have less uncertainty, more power to them. I just want the ability to structure my life so that my level of security, which it seems to be my need for a level of security, which seems to be less than many others, is also given credence. I have found that my sponsees all tend to be anti-authoritarian <laughs> and they all and they all tend to be to a certain extent anti-establishment. Oh. And so I've got a great group of people who are constantly questioning not only the structures of the A, but every structure around them and want to find a better way to live their lives. And there needs to be those of us among, among people with time who are willing to have sponsees who have a lot of open questions. Let those questions go as, go as answered or unanswered as is possible to make them and we'll just live in that uncertainty. This program provides me the certainty and the structure that I need to move forward. I may not know what's going to happen. I am powerless to control it, but I have a program that allows me to figure out how to respond to whatever happens. Yeah. Sam, I've heard it so well stated that um, instead of, structuring the world to suit me. I need to structure me to, to, to fit in the world. I have to work on me so that I can be comfortable in this world because I cannot make this world comfortable for me. Right. Exactly. I believe that entirely. So is so, AA a cult? Um, no. Is AA a cult? O-C-C-U-L-T. Yes. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know what no. I always say, Sam, and I realized at the beginning of the meeting, I always say, welcome to the Boil Dow. The Boil Dow? The Boil <laughs> Dow. Yes, we're, we're boiling a stick, right? I've got to, I've got to move that D over. So, so I've got to speak more clearly. It's that lazy so southern a, tongue. So not a cult. A cult. <laughs> um, for me, no, Alcoholics Anonymous is not a cult. I do get that there are people out there who um, are more uh, structural, uh, in it. But, you know, one of the biggest things that tells me that this is not a cult is that these are suggestions. Uh, every single thing that is offered in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous or 12 step recovery is, is a suggestion. It's not because as doc mentioned about how his sponsees are somewhat anti-authoritarian, uh, <laughs> If you had told me that I had to do this and I had to do that and I've got to drink this and I've got to act this way and 
you know, that would not have worked. I would have walked right out the door. I would be dead now, maybe, but, uh, but I certainly wouldn't have stayed in these rooms. Everything that I've gotten has not been, you, mu- you have to do this. You must do that. And yes, I know there are musts in the, uh, the big book, but what works for me, what, what has gotten through to me is the members of Alcoholics Anonymous and other fellowships who have shared with me what has worked for them. They didn't tell me what to do. You need to go do this, Sonny. Um, they told me that, you know, I was in a similar situation or I was feeling like that. And this is what I did. And this is what it did for me. And that has really helped me because I then get to choose. I choose whether or not I'm going to listen to what they've got to say. You know, there's another thing about take what you need and leave the rest. That's hugely important in these rooms because there are so many flavors of recovery in these rooms. There's so many flavors of spirituality. There's so many flavors of opinion that there's no way that I'm going to agree with probably a lot of them. I don't know. But what it boils down to is that I don't have to. I don't have to take what people are saying as written gospel. Um, I don't have to adhere to what works for them. Now, the one thing that I will say uh, is that I do give authority to my sponsor. It's a choice that I make whenever I enter that relationship with someone who is sponsoring me that I want to do this program your way. I want to follow your direction. And by me choosing that person and giving them, granting them authority, I'm okay with doing what they tell me to do. Or, and again, it's generally a strong suggestion in the first place. But it's not going to bring my hackles up. It's not going to bring up that resistance in me that would happen if someone just said, Sam, go write down all your character defects and how you've wronged everybody. So is it a cult? No, it's not a cult. Are there people out there who treat it as a cult? Yes. And then are there people out there who have only the barest taste of AA or who have no idea of what AA is, who will type their, their, their keyboard warrior uh, uh, scribes out onto the interwebs and talk about how AA is an occult, is a cult, excuse me. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, there are people out there who've got opinions that are wholly, uh, wholly uninformed. My experience, it's not a cult. I'm very happy with it. You know, when in the original manuscript, one of the things that you can see constantly in, in reading is everywhere, you is slashed out and we is written in. Instead of you must yeah. do this, you must do that, you must do that, you must... It, all throughout the whole thing, it's all changed to, we, we do this, we did this, we did this. And it's all, it, what it is, is changing it from a command to an invitation. Yeah, a com- an invitation yeah. instead of a command. There's a few coffee ring stains on that manuscript too. Yeah, there are. <laughs> <laughs> Doc, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. For Thank you, for you so much, me. Doc. Yeah. It's been fantastic. Make sure you watch your head there. Here comes that owl. <laughs> 
Thanks for joining us. The Boiled Owl podcast is posted on the 1st and 15th of every month. Visit us at boiledowlaa.org or email giveahoot at boiledowlaa.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous in your city or visit aa.org. Please note, Boiled Owl AA is produced by members of Alcoholics Anonymous and only expresses our experience and opinions. It is not endorsed by AA World Services. Oh my for God! Helping just... us boil some dowels, Doc. <laughs> You're quite welcome. <laughs> it was great meeting you, Don.